you have a Bible, we're in 1 Samuel. We're going to do all of chapter 24 today. We've entered the chapter phase of 1 Samuel now. Each chapter is its own glorious little story. So we have a Bible, 1 Samuel 24. Before we open the word of God, let us pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this glorious day, this beautiful day, Lord, that you have made for us to come and rejoice before you and sing to you to be refreshed in you. We pray, Lord God, that as we open your word now, that you would enlighten our minds, that you would soften our hearts to the truth, Lord. We are uh, troubled people living in troubled times, and I pray, Lord God, that the light of your word, the light of your throne, the light of your person, Lord, lead us through uh, the shadow. We praise you and thank you for all these things. In the name of your Son, and amen. Amen. So chapters 24 through 26 are interesting for a number of reasons. But what, what is happening is David has, is now going to go through a series of abusive encounters with enemies. He's going to, he's going to run in with um, three different people who are going to try to destroy him, to ruin him. Twice, it's Saul. It's kind of the bookends to the whole thing. In chapter 24 and 26, David is going to have direct encounters with Saul. In chapter 25, David is pitted against the fool Nabal, a wealthy landowner living near Carmel, in which David is saved by Lady Wisdom. (laughs) Uh, It's not his bride yet, but a woman worthy to be a bride comes and demonstrates why men need women. (laughs) Uh, And what's funny about that is, uh, you know, I schedule these sermons out like eight months in advance. This chapter 25 is what I was supposed to do on Mother's Day. (laughs) Just if you get some sense of (laughs) how these things work. So it's not quite a Mother's Day sermon, but it'll be good. What, who is Lady Wisdom? Why do men need a lady in their life? Why do two men <laughs> need wisdom in their life? But in each of these episodes, David is tempted to strike out against his enemies and grasp the throne. He's thrice presented with the throne. Right? He's already been anointed. We know that he's supposed to become king after Saul, and he is repeatedly given the opportunity to make that happen now. Now, the theological background of this is very deep. One-third of the 80 or so uses of the words good and evil occur in chapters 24 through 26. You take all the times that they say good and evil in the entire book of 1 Samuel, and 80% of them happen in, in chapters 24 to 26. Now, the two words often are used together, as in 1 Samuel 24, 17. Saul said, David, you are more righteous than I, For you have repaid me good, whereas I repaid you evil. We're dealing with good and evil. Now, En Gedi is an oasis on the western shore of the Dead Sea. If anybody wants to see what it looks like, actually, Kevin has a picture of he and his wife standing at the fountain, uh, the the waterfall in En Gedi. It's beautiful. And it's this uh, waterfall that does come, in fact, off this cliff. The picture in the Archaeological Study Bible wasn't nearly as good as Kevin's. You should look at Kevin's. (laughs) It's garden. David is hiding in a garden, struggling with good and evil. This is not an accident. Coupling these things together, we see that David struggling with good and evil in setting up a typological connection to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in Eden. He's a new man, struggling with what is good and what is evil, struggling with God telling him, here, this is the promise I'm giving to you. You can have all of these trees, but you can't eat of this one yet. God says to David, you can have this throne, but not yet. So is he going to be like Adam who took the fruit that was denied him? 
Is he going to take the throne that is not yet his? That's what the entire struggle is about in these three chapters. The Edenic shadows make David's temptations in the wilderness Edemic temptations. David is tempted by impatience to seize the forbidden fruit and take a juicy bite, to grasp after the throne that is not yet his. Now, this is the tension in the whole text, especially for those of us who have read the New Testament. One of David's chief qualifications for kingship is the fact um, that God has said, you will be ha- this is a man who has a heart after me. Right? This is, Yahweh said, this, I'm going to give you a king who has a heart after me. And so what you see in these three chapters is David proving his mettle. David is earning the throne here. He's showing that he is the man that God says he is. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 11 says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. That's the heart of God. Right? Jesus, who is promised the throne, Jesus, who deserves the throne, will receive the throne when he accomplishes what the Father wants him to accomplish, and no other way. Now, is David like that, or is David like Adam? That's the question. Modern Christians must have their senses trained to resist the similar temptations that David is going to endure. Power grabs. Graspiness is one <laughs> What I find in the last couple of years is that not, we have a difficulty with authority. We don't really understand the sphere of sovereignty like we should. What is the role of a family, church, state? What is it? We don't really know, generally. Most of us are confused by it. And what we end up doing, we don't understand the context of what's happening to us. We are always, all of us, tempted to grasp after things that are not ours. We want what God promises, and we want it now. We, we, we have got to fight against being graspy and being scofflaws, trying to, trying to take control of things that are beyond our purview, reviling enemies and taking vengeance into our own hands. This is, this is one of those things that has bothered me ever since I became a Christian. What, one of them is this. When I hear Christians, Christian laymen, bad-mouthing and tearing down a Christian pastor, when I hear citizens tearing down and bad-mouthing for no particular reason their government officials. Now, what did I and didn't I just say? Right? It's like my son. I, I, uh, I occasionally have to remind him, like, listen, I'm not asking for, for your personal opinion about how I'm doing as a dad at the moment, right? That's when we're all calm and we go out for coffee. And you do that. If you ever want to have a treat, dads, take your kids out and just ask them how you're doing. I do it from time to time. It's very helpful. But you know when I don't want to hear that is when I'm actually instructing my son what he's supposed to be doing, right? Now, how often... Uh, does this happen where you're listening to a minister and he says something that you don't like and you think, and, and, and it's automatically, right, it's about the person instead of the thing they're saying. You're like, well, you know, of course he would say that. He's argumentative. Of course he would say that, right? He's, he's combative. <laughs> Did you ever stop to think that the thing that was being said is combative for a reason, right? We, we have a difficult time figuring out who it is that we even have the purview to criticize, now, I have a degree in criminal justice, so I feel like it's my responsibility to criticize the chief justices of the Supreme Court. And frankly, if you actually had them here, they would be so far out of my pay grade 
that it wouldn't even be funny. Right? They probably read more in one year on the law than I ever read in my entire college degree. But somehow I feel like I'm an expert because I've read a few books about it. And, and this is what we're talking about here. Who are you? What is your purview? What is your portfolio? What is it that God has given you responsibility for? And how is that going? Why are you worried about that guy's responsibility over there living in Olympia who's, like, has, who's so far outside of your pay grade, so far outside of your influence, but you think if, any, if people would just listen to you, this guy would know what he's supposed to do? Right? We're, we're going to see. David finally has an audience with the king. And now, if we all had an audience for 25 minutes with Jay Inslee, how do you think that would go? Right? Give me 25 minutes, baby. Let me do it. Show me to his office. Now, if you ever had that moment, I want you to th- imagine what you would be like in front of that authority. You get Joe Biden, from, well, forget Joe Biden. You get his, whoever his handlers are, you get to sit down with them for 25 minutes. What would you say to them? Would it look anything like the speech David's about to give to the king of Israel? This graspiness is something that we have all struggled with since Adam, and we think somehow that it's not the struggle that we're all struggling with right now. Now, are there actual injustices? Is there actual tyranny? Are there actual dangers? Absolutely. But if you want to talk about those things, we have to undergird the entire conversation with this. You are a grasper. I am a grasper. We all are grasping after things that are not ours. We're all trying to extend our portfolio well beyond the boundaries the Lord God has given us. The heart of God is different. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23 through 25. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now, who is the shepherd and overseer of your soul? You? Who is the shepherd and overseer of your neighbor's soul? You? Right? (laughs) We can all go to the ballot box, but in the end, who picks the president? Who is it that did that to us? Wounds from enemies, amid Jesus' fight, he did fight, okay? He did fight. He received wounds from his enemies. He, right, that if he has wounds on the cross, he's being stabbed, right? He's actually in conflict. This is what I was talking about last week, and I'm going to be talking a great deal about it. It's not that he didn't fight. It's that he fought a particular way. And it's time now to move on the argument as to whether we should fight or not. It's now, let's talk about how. Let's talk about what your purview is. Let's talk about your responsibility. Let's talk about the size of your throne and your kingdom. It's not nearly as big as you think it is. <laughs> right? I mean, I'm just, <laughs> I'm, I, I'm working on this idea where the, the central heresy in every one of our lives is that we, we are trying to replace one of the members of the Trinity. We either think we're the Father, doing what the Father's supposed to do, Or we like to think we're the spirit. We're going to change people, right? If I just spend enough time with this person and say the right things and give them enlightenment, I will change their hearts. Or we think we're the son. And and every one of us are either struggling, struggling with replacing ourselves in one of those roles, or, if you're anything like me, replacing yourself with all three. Especially now that I have this. Right? I'll be the father and the son and the spirit. Watch me. 
Watch me work. But that's not... <laughs> this is what I'm talking about. We all are grasping after things that are not ours. Okay. Now, how did David do? How did, David, how, how did he handle the temptations? What did he learn from the temptations? How did he come out in the end? That's what we need to figure out. And, we, and then what we need to do is sit down and think about our own lives and how we're doing in this struggle with graspiness. We read in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verses 1 through 3, When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to see David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. If I ever open a pub, it's going to be called the wild goat's rocks. <laughs> and he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. Right? Look at that providence, putting his enemy right into his hand. Beautiful. Now, Saul had gone off to fight the Philistines. That's how we did last week. He was distracted from chasing David down by real enemies, the real enemies he's supposed to fight, but nobody tells us how it went. It's like the first time in this entire book where they don't tell us the result of the conflict. We don't know what happened. Did the Philistines win? Did Saul win? Because right immediately, we got Saul right at the throat of David again. Oh, where, right at the end of the last chapter, he goes to En Gedi. And then now, all of a sudden, Saul, who was supposed to have an enemy to fight, is now also in En Gedi, looking for David with 3,000 of his best troops. You know that, <laughs> that a guy has lost his mind when he takes 3,000 of his best troops on, down one dude. Saul is never without a scouting report. He's told where, uh, that David is in Gedi, so therefore he goes. Needing a restroom, Saul enters into a cave because, as we learn in Deuteronomy 23, you're not allowed to go to the bathroom in God's army's camp. Okay? No going to the bathroom in the camp where the Lord's army is. You have to have a place outside the camp to go to the bathroom. So Saul is at least following this portion of the law. So he goes into this cave. Now, the, if you translated the Hebrew, it actually says he covers his feet which is a, a very polite Hebrew euphemism for defecating. This is the Bible for you, right? This is, we, we think it's all PG-13. He's literally going to the bathroom. He's defecating. That's what it means. And, and I like this Hebrew idiom. I think we should use this more. Or where do you got to go? I got to go and cover my feet. <laughs> so he goes into this cave to do it. And lo and behold, who's hiding in the back of the cave where he is defecating? David and all of his men. Now, this, is, this whole story is full of echoes of other stories. The only other place in the Old Testament where this Hebrew euphemism is used is Judges chapter 3, verse 24. In Judges chapter 3, the judge Ehud kills the king of Moab, Eglon, while Eglon's servants wait outside thinking that Eglon was covering his feet. Right? Eglon goes into the bathroom. He locks the door. Strange. Uh, he's, and, and he gets stabbed, and the knife goes all the way into his into him and he leaves it there and he runs away okay this is the only other time so who does this make david and saul out to be then right this is what they're trying to tell us saul is like the king of moab david is like the judge except he's not like the judge is he because he doesn't go in there and stab him hmm god sanctioned that though right so isn't that in that case why did god want him to kill that king of moab but in this case he doesn't want him to kill the king why does David understand the difference? This is deep biblical ethics, right? This is well beyond the Ten Commandments. This requires sanctified wisdom. 
Saul's vulnerability and the illusion of Ehud heightened the literary tension in the story to place a great deal of emphasis on what David does next. Right? There's all these shadows. What is he going to do now? Is he going to kill this guy or not kill this guy? Is he a judge, a new judge, or not? The author has set the scene in three quick verses, heightening our expectation for action. Right? Okay, now we're going to get to some bloodletting. 1 Samuel 24, 4 through 7. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So, so David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. So I guess he's not a judge. That Saul should have chosen the very cave where David and his men had taken up occupation is a striking providence that is extraordinarily comical. You cannot tell me that God does not have a sense of humor. I mean, he literally used these two men to write a really funny joke. Right? Saul's hunting down David. David hides in a cave. Saul goes in the cave to go poop. You're like, is that, is that, really, is that really what we're, right? This is the word of God. And, and I'm just going to remind you in Luke, Jesus said all of the Old Testament was about him. This is what I'm saying. This is why my library is as big as it is. David's men see immediately the opportunity. They see the providence of God. Look at what God is doing for you. Look, he's put him in your hands. They share his hunted existence. David, you can free all of us right now by killing the dude right now. You will become king. We won't have to live in caves where people poop. It's going to be amazing. Do it. Do it, David. Right? And how many of you guys there including myself, I'm, I'm going to say, I'd be there and be like, yeah, this is it, Dave. Let's do this, right? Lesser magistrates. Let's roll, son. Right? Because he is a general in Israel. He is a part of the household of God. He is a lesser magistrate. If you know anything about the lesser magistrate doctrine, Dave, this is it right here. I would have a hard time not arguing to stab Saul in the throat. And David doesn't do it. He doesn't do it. And doesn't that turn everything that we've been talking about for the last two years on its head? David has plenty of motive, right? (laughs) This is also what's funny. If you study murder, which I have done a great deal because my degree is in criminal justice, um, there's a lot of motive to murder all the time. All the time. There's lots of motive to murder. What most people don't have is opportunity. Right? And it's the same thing with thieving. Most people would actually steal a great deal of stuff if they actually simply had the one thing. The one mis- missing ingredient is always opportunity. Every one of you, or I will be generous, 85% of you would murder and or steal something if merely given the opportunity. There is plenty of motive in your own heart. There is. I'm telling you, this is how... <laughs> the people who are in court for murder and stealing, the thing that got them there wasn't that their heart's different than your heart, They were presented with an opportunity. So here is David, and what we see is exactly what kind of man he is because he's given the last thing, the opportunity. He has motive. I would even say he has some moderate amount of justification, and yet he doesn't do it. And and I'm with the apostles on this one. What kind of man is this? 
And like they said of Jesus, when you see David, I know that we like to run him through the mud from time to time, but what kind of man is this? He will free himself and all of his men if he just does it, and he doesn't do it. Now, verse 3 mentioned the sheepfolds near the cave, which is a suggestion that this entire thing is about revealing the true shepherd of Israel. Is the true shepherd of Israel a man like Saul or a man like David? Is it a man like Yahweh or a man like Satan? Satan is a liar and a murderer. God is not. He is loving and gracious and compassionate. So who is the true shepherd in Israel? Who is the rightful king? David's men concluded that Saul had been given into David's hand, citing a promise. And what's fascinating is we've been through 1 Samuel so far. Nowhere did God make this promise. God never promised to David that I will put Saul into your hands. He never once even suggests it. He does, however, promise that he will deal with the enemies of David. David gets it. His men don't. Well, I thought, right, who cares how? God said that your enemies would be destroyed, so let's destroy some enemies. And you're like, well, there's that little tricky theological piece. God said he would do it. He didn't say you do it. And so here his men are, right? These are like the counselors of Job. The theology here is pretty, pretty good, actually, and it's very subtle. Providence has put him into your hands. God said he would destroy your enemies. Let's kill him. And David doesn't explain it, but he's got the missing ingredients because he knows God. He's like, well, he has providentially brought this to me, but it's not an opportunity to kill him. It's an opportunity to be tested. Do I want the throne my way or his way? Am, am I taking vengeance in my hands, or is he retaining the, his purview, his authority, which is vengeance? Is he going to grasp after that sword of vengeance, or is he going to let it remain in the, in the Lord's hands? This is a test for Yahweh's servant. This is proper theology, the doctrine of the sanctity of Yahweh's anointed. For David, it was one thing to have the promise of the kingdom, which Yahweh did give him twice in 1 Samuel chapter 20 and verse 23. But how David receives the kingdom is the issue. And David determines that the end that God has ordained must be reached by the means that God approves. Now, let's make that into a t-shirt. David determines that the end that God has ordained must be reached by the means that God approves. Now, didn't even Jesus struggle with this? Right? In, the, in Gethsemane, is there no other way? Is there no other way? Is there no other way? Now, how often do we struggle with that? Or how often are we like David's counselors here? Let's see. We have motive and we have opportunity. Let's go for it. But there's a higher law, isn't there? There's a deeper understanding. There's a greater wisdom that David is displaying at this moment. Now, David's greater descendant will face the same test the exact same test. Matthew chapter 4, verse 8 and 9, the devil shows Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and said to him, all these things I will give to you. Now, the first question I always ask here is, why didn't he just say, get out of here, these aren't yours, unless Satan actually owned them? Now, that's a sermon for another day. Satan actually owns the kingdoms. And he says, hey, I have control of these now. So why, why are we going to go through all this fighting? Why fight, right? We're a people of peace. Why don't we just forget all the conflict and you can just have all these kingdoms from me if you simply bow down and worship me? Right? And Jesus knows the word of God. 
He knows in Psalm chapter 2, verse 8 and 9, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. The anointed of the Lord will, in fact, inherit the entire world, all the kingdoms of the world, and all their glory. And, and Satan is literally tempting Jesus with God's will. God says, listen, ask, of the, ask me, ask me, and I'll give them all to you. And Satan says, yeah, 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 he'll give them all to you. He'll give them all to you. But why go through all that, right? You're going to struggle at Gethsemane, I know. You're going to have trouble with this, Jesus. So why don't we just put all that aside and you just take these out of my hand right now by bowing down and worshiping me? And every time we make a compromise to grasp after something that isn't ours, Satan is whispering in our ear, take the thing that God promised, but don't go through all that hard work. Just take it now. And what sin doesn't fall into that category? The kind of test is not confined to David and Jesus. It comes again and again and again to all of us. It is the temptation of the shortcut that grasps after the promise according to our own timing and our own methodology. Well, he said I could have it. How often are we tempted to take the shortcut? How often are we tempted to find the key or decisive insight that gives us all the wisdom of Moses and all the wisdom of Solomon and all the power of Jesus Christ? Give me the theological shortcut. Now, I don't know... People are different. But do you know how often I fall into some sin, and you know the first thing I do after I've repented is I go and I, tr- I buy a book about it. <laughs> and I mean, I'm not going to say 95% of my library has resulted from this. <laughs> but this is what I do. I'm like, oh, you know what? If I just had that key insight, I'd never do that sin again. Right? If, if we just made, right, or in your own house, you're trying to be sanctified, So you're like, well, let's just make this one golden rule. But we already have been given a golden rule, right? Why are we trying to be the Holy Spirit? Why are we acting like Amazon's the Holy Spirit? Amazon's going to provide for me all the insight I ever need to never sin again. I don't think that's what Bezos was intending. We look for the shortcut. We look for the microwave meal instead of the bread of heaven. We look for the way out opposed, right? We, We want a way around the cave, we don't want to hide in the cave where people defecate, <laughs> right? We don't want to go down to Hades. We don't want to go down into hell. We don't want to go down into the shadows. We don't want to go down into the darkness, right? And, and what is Jesus? This is what he didn't promise you there wouldn't be darkness. He said he would go with you. There is no shortcut. You can go to Gethsemane and kneel down. In where the blood-soaked dirt is next to Jesus and pray as hard as you can. But there is no other way to a crown but a cross. That's it. That's, that's the only way. We yearn for a shortcut around the arduous, the wearing, the time-consuming labor of sanctification. We want our crowns without the crosses. But we are called to a person leading us through a process Okay? And the process is not open the microwave door, put the tray in, and hit some buttons, hit start, and you just wait. Right? If you, what is that? That's really what we want. Especially us modern people. We love it. We plug it into a wall. We don't even have to power it ourselves. We just stand here. I didn't even have to put anything in it. I just take it out of the freezer, and I rip off that plastic. It's been a while since I had a TV dinner. That's still how they do it, right? You rip off that plastic. You crack open the thing. You slide it in. You hit three minutes on medium. And we think this is sanctification. That's different than every day asking for your daily bread, isn't it? Because you can't microwave bread. Well, you can, actually. 
I do the worst. The, there was a, the lowest point in my life is when I used to microwave scrambled eggs. Okay? And that, like, that's my physical health. That's how it was doing. My spiritual health wasn't that much better. <laughs> this is what Jesus wants, though, here in Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge. And knowledge was self-control, and self-control was steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, please, someone, give me the microwave option. I've got to increase in knowledge. I've got to add to that. You know how hard it is to get more knowledge? I've got to add to that virtue. So it's not just about what I know, but it's how I act. Are you kidding me? I bet Fred Meyer has some microwave dinners. I've, I bet Amazon has a book I can read that just cuts right to the chase, causes me to never do this again, and I will be fine. Now, this is what's presented to David. And again, I, I'm sorry, we're going to get into this now. It's gonna be, we're going to have to temper our language about David, because who... Who is this man? David has this opportunity right here to cut right to the front of the line, and he doesn't do it. How? How in the world? Whatever his future failures may be, how did he succeed right here in this moment? His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That's it, right? His his oven is plugged into God, and he's baking bread. Now, David sneaks up. Now, how hard is this, okay? Saul's a soldier, too. He's covering his feet in the cave. And David, wearing his armor, crawls up real slow. And, I mean, it's like, how sharp is his knife? He cuts off a corner of the, of the ground. This just, there's so much awkwardness here. Like, just think about what's actually happened for a moment. <laughs> like, the Bible is not always what, you know, we make it out to be. It's gross and funny. Now, what happens right after David cuts the hem of his robe, right? It doesn't explain to us why he made this decision. It's just internally in David. He, his heart is in the right place. He just reacts the right, right way. Instead of slitting his throat, I'm going to slit the end of his robe. And immediately he's struck in the heart. He's struck in the heart. Instead of striking Saul in the heart, he is struck in the heart. As Yahweh's anointed, Saul's person was sacrosanct and must not be harmed. Hence, to touch, defile, or attack the anointed of the Lord is to defile, attack, and touch the Lord. Right? What am I always telling you guys? Our fingers are not big, right, big enough to, to get around the neck of the Lord. We want to choke him to death because in our hearts we hate him. But we can't reach up into heaven to get him. And so what we do is we go to work on each other. Right? And so here it is. Here's the opportunity. I'm going to stab this guy in the heart. But in the end, he stabbed in the heart. 
He knows. It's sacrosanct. I can't touch this guy because laying a hand on this guy is like laying a hand on the Lord, and I would rather cut my hand off than do that. I would rather be stabbed in my own heart than stab the Lord's anointed in the heart. Now, how does that change your politics? How does that change your ethics? How does that change your engagement in what's going on in the state of Washington? What's really fascinating then, (laughs) David's got this tender conscience. He's getting stabbed in his own heart. And then he turns to his followers. And, and, And in the ESV, it says persuade them. And that's actually not the word. The word in Hebrew actually is tear apart or cleave. He tears into his own men. He cleaves his own men. He starts stabbing his own men with his words because they wanted him to kill God. Is what he's saying. I cannot lay my hands on the anointed of the Lord because it's like laying my hands on God. And so he's cut in the heart because of it. And now he's tearing into his own men. What, did he stab Saul in the heart, the enemy of the Lord? No, but he's tearing into his own men. Now, as Christian leaders, <laughs> uh, what? I tear into my own people? You go to church on Sunday and you tear into your own people? Is that really what the Lord wants you to do? Yes. (laughs) This is the ministry given to Christian leaders. This is the ministry given to us. We tear into one another. We are cut in our hearts. We're trying to have a conscience that is shaped by the word of God, that is instructed by God, that is directed Godward. Proverbs 27.6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. If if, If you are incapable or unwilling to wound one another, you are not friends. You are not friends. That was what I was trying to cover in the membership thing over the summertime. When is the last time any one of you tore in to any one of you? Right? I, I would rejoice a little bit if I had some emails from some people like, hey, we need a third party to help us work out this thing. <laughs> and I'd be like, woo, conflict, baby. Bring it. This is what I'm talking about. Somebody tear into somebody already. Now, I know, I just said it. And I mean it. Like, when's the last time you tore into your wife? When's the last time you tore into your husband? When's the last time you tore into your kids? When's the last time you tore into me? When's the last time you tore into one another? Now, does he actually get out a real knife and tear into him? No, this like, oh, he persuaded him. That's the modern evangelical way of doing it. They had a dialogue. When's the last time you saw some sin and you were like, dude, that's a violation of the third commandment that you're doing right there. Right? Your family would be like, whoa, why are you tearing into me? You're like, because God said to. Now, if you go to Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, it'll tell you, those who are spiritual, restore those who are trapped in sin. Now, am I saying just have that one another? Well, yeah, actually I am. But in order to do that, you have to first be spiritual yourself. Right? Because tearing into him, after, right? he's not even going to stab his enemy with a knife. When he tears into his own people, do you think that it was in a way that was sinful? Do you think when Jesus tore into people, well, we know he didn't sin, but we know he tore into people. And so there is a way to do it with grace and dignity and love and compassion and by the Spirit. Go and find out what this means. David turns from Saul and tears into his own men because what they wanted to do was for David to do violence to God. 
Are you, whoever it is in your life, willing to defend God's honor that way? God's anointed that way? This is biblical leadership. This is kingly behavior. This is the comportment of a son of God. Now, it's very dangerous what I'm saying, isn't it? And it should be, because we're not Jesus, are we? So read the book of Proverbs. Read the book of James. Read the book of Romans. Read the Gospels. Find out what this means. In order to defend the anointed of the Lord, you're willing to even tear into your own people. Right? It's not rather we should. It's how. That's where we're at now. Okay, 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 8 through 15. After David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, my lord the king, when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the, of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you, do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord, therefore, be judge and give sentence between me and you, and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. There you go. There's your five minutes in front of the throne of power. Does he speak to him respectfully? Does he take vengeance into his own hands? Does he judge him? Right? We're not supposed to be judgy. That's like a thing we're not supposed to do now. Does he judge Saul? He does. By what? Right? Does he mention himself or does he mention the Lord? The Lord. The Lord. See, see, see. See what the Lord has, has given into my hand to do that I didn't do. Why not? Because the Lord has anointed you. He's not talking about his grievances. He's not like, well, hey, I've had to wear a mask for months. I've had to do this, that, and the other thing. Look, I've had to pay taxes, and what's up with the IRS? Can you imagine? For 25 minutes, if you gave me just a congressman, the things that I could come up with to say, the injustices and the grievances I would bear. You know, none of them have ever hunted me down in a cave. Never. But my list of grievances would be pretty long. And here David is, speaking truth to power, in a way that looks a lot like Jesus, doesn't it? Now, is this conflict? Is this wrestling? Is this fighting? Yes, but how? How? He emerges from the cave, risking, right, what? At any moment, Saul can see him, and Saul can say, oh, there he is. Oh, my goodness, he was there all along. Kill him. So is David in danger when he comes out of the cave? Yes, yes, because reconciliation is always dangerous. It always is dangerous. It's dangerous not only to what could happen to us, but what could happen to the other person. Remember, uh, well, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, it, it says, when you're restoring someone who's trapped in sin, be careful yourself, because you might also fall into the same sin that you're addressing. So it's dangerous to reconcile with people. And yet David does it. 
1 John 4.18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. He's not afraid of what Saul is going to do. He has a mission. He has a responsibility. He has the word of God. He knows what God is like and what God requires, and therefore he does not have fear. Right? The story could have lasted 10 seconds. Saul sees him, says, shoot him with an arrow, he's dead. Could that have happened? Right? Could they have strung him up by his thumbs and done all the wicked and terrible things that evil and wicked kings do to people they don't like? He didn't care. He has a responsibility. Now, he, <laughs> this is, we could all learn a little something about this here. David is now talking to the king. He, he addresses him as my lord, the king. Very honorific. He calls him father. And then he doesn't say, why are you doing this to me? He says, who have you been listening to? He attributes the decisions that Saul is making to bad advisors. He's giving him the benefit of the doubt. He's giving him the benefit of the doubt. He doesn't even accuse him directly. He then is calling him to make a judgment for himself. See, look, look at the thing in my hand. Look at how God put you in my hand, and all that's in my hand is what? Blood? Or a piece, a piece of your garment, just to demonstrate the fact of how close it came to being your throat. Judge for yourself, Saul, he says. Right? He comes with honor on his lips, with honey on his lips, with clear and direct evidence in his hands. He's not saying anything about himself. He's not justifying himself. He's not making any personal accusations. He's also being very gracious to Saul. David's faith in the Lord's judgment is the reason that David can be patient under affliction. All of this patience, all of this compassion, all of this understanding, this slowness to act is because he trusts the Lord. He's unafraid because of the Lord. Since he entrusted himself to the Lord who judges rightly, he did not have to return evil for evil. David could return good for evil in confidence that Yahweh would be the one to vindicate him. He believes what the scriptures say. Now, will there or will there not be a judgment day? Okay, on that day, who is going to distribute wrath and grace to those who are deserving? Right? Who's going to distribute it? Are there going to be people chucked in hell? Yes. And are you going to be the one with a big boot kicking them in? No. Right? No. I know you'd like to be. But you're not. And so he believes in the resurrection. He believes in the judgment day. He believes in the eschaton. And so he doesn't, there's a ton he does not have to worry about. His portfolio, his purview is very small because he leaves to God what's odds. I don't have to raise a hand against you, Saul, because God's going to do it. Now, again, we think that this is, this is reviling an enemy, but it's not reviling an enemy. It's telling an enemy exactly what's going to happen to them if they keep messing with us. You know, he's telling him, violence is coming, Saul. Vengeance is coming, Saul. He's telling him that. But what he's not doing is saying, I'm going to do it. He's warning them. This is the gospel according to Agag. If you continue going this way, God promised that he would bless those who bless his children and curse those who curse his children. And, And this is the Lord we're talking about. He is big enough and bad enough to do it. And so you better get your story straight, Saul, or you're going to have to answer to him. He limits his purview to what it is, warning him that God judges mankind. 
Judge for yourself the evidence in my hand, because you too will at one point fall into a hand of the living God, and he will judge you. That is not reviling an enemy. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. Right? The only way to not be judged at that moment, the only way to get free, the only way to be justified, to escape, to be saved, is by Jesus Christ. Otherwise, right, if you just... It's just Jesus the Savior. He just saves everyone. He loves everyone. He doesn't revile anyone. Right? We never tell anyone the bad news. David is warning him, but it's not personal. Okay? I mean, <laughs> have you guys ever had this happen to you where you quote a verse to someone and they're like, you're so arrogant and judgy. You're like, listen, like, I understand that you feel that way. I get it. I actually, I'm more arrogant and judgy than you could possibly imagine. Trust me. Right? Ask my kids. I may be arrogant and judgy, but what I'm quoting to you is, is the word of God, right? The word of God will judge you. The word of God, you'll be hanging in the balance, and you either, right, fall on the Lord's at, at his feet and worship him and kiss the sun, or a rod of iron is going to crush you. And you're like, that, that may sound judgy and arrogant, but it's the word of God, and I'm not going to apologize for it. We do the gospel a disservice if it's all this pie-in-the-sky nonsense, non-conflict, Let's just have a dialogue. Everybody goes their own way. Who am I to judge? Yeah, you're no one to judge. Shut up. Let the word of God judge them. David is leaving judgment and vengeance in the hands of the Lord. Psalm 57.3, he will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. Now listen, listen. Don't be more spiritual than God. Okay? You're not holier than he is. And I want you to think about this. Does this comfort you? Those who are persecuting you, those who are like wicked and evil and are attacking you, is God going to trample them down? He is, right? And the fact that we have difficulty with this is our difficulty. Does he, now, does he saying, like, right? Remember David. Did he say, David, you're going to trample your enemies, or I'm going to trample your enemies? Right? Now, now what I want is I, there's a lot of people I don't want to be his enemies now. Frankly, it's a motivating factor. <laughs> there is a semi-truck who's going to run over you at the judgment unless, I, unless we can convince you of the truth. And I'm not the Holy Spirit. I'm just going to say, look at the evidence in my hand. Okay? Let, let's consider this. Let's work this out. This changes the way that we do apologetics. We have to be able to pray this way. God, come descend from heaven, please, and trample this man in his flesh and make him one of your children or get him out of the way. Deliver us from this. Don't take up the weapons yourself. Leave the weapons in the Lord's hands and and, and act accordingly. Now, Again, this just kicks all of our modern ideas down the stairs. Because if I went, on, if I went up to like, someone who was persecuting me, and I even talked to them the way Dave talked to them, and another Christian, evangelical Christian, overheard it, they would be like, where do you get off? Huh? Why are you? How dare But by the grace of God, Mike. You're like, yeah, that's, that's actually true. True. But by the grace of God, where would I be? Nowhere. I'd be just like this guy. But somebody, had to, <laughs> somebody did this to me to save me from the darkness. Somebody addressed my sin. Somebody addressed my darkness. Somebody told me the truth, and that's how, why I'm here now. Because faith comes through hearing. And we want to act like it comes some other way, 
right? Buy it on Amazon. Faith comes through hearing, and unless they hear, they're never going to come to faith. It has the effect on him, on Saul, that David wants. It cuts him down. He says to him in verses 16 to 21, as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. He had done no sin to Saul, and Saul sees it as a witness. You are good and I am not. You are righteous and I am not. You have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil, and you have declared this day how you have dealt with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king, that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. After David's speech, Saul, weeping, calls him my son. He calls him David. He demonstrates the fact that he is a member of the household of, of, of Saul, the, the king. In verses 17 to 19, Saul uses the term good or goodness four times. In verses 17 and 18 and twice in verse 19, Saul admits that David has shown him profound goodness. Now, is every conflict with unbelief going to end this way? No. Okay? I can hardly get all the conflicts with unbelief in my own heart to end this way. But you can't tell me, right, that this is never allowed. He comes to Saul. He tells Saul his sin. He speaks with honeyed words. He, he tells him of the vengeance of the Lord. He tells him to judge rightly. He's telling him that there is a judge that stands above him. And what it does is it causes Saul to think about what he's doing and to weep over it and to make the right judgment. Yes, you are good and I am not. You will be king after me. He remembers himself. It's effective. It's persuasive. Now, did David revile him? Did David stab him? Did David take vengeance in his own hands? Was David the judge? Even the enemies of God will sometimes say of us the, the, the words that God has in his mouth. But Balaam's ass in Numbers 22, surely he confirms the truth, right? There's this, there's this prophet they keep paying him to curse Israel. And all he, all he can do is curse the enemies of Israel, right? Because so, sometimes even our enemies speak the truth. And here is Saul, who's David's enemy. Saul, who's willing to murder priests to get at David, is willing to actually can recognize the truth. There's enough of the light coming through that Saul sees it, and Saul will declare it. And this sometimes happens. I remember um, the first century Christians. One of the accusations the Roman historians made was like, listen, guys, how pathetic are we Romans? Like, not only do they take care of their own, they take care of ours. Because the Christians used to go out to the trash heap where they would leave babies, the ancient form of abortion. They would take them to Gehenna, this trash heap outside of Rome, or outside of Jerusalem, sorry, and leave the, the Romans would leave these babies there. And the Christians would come along and take them and raise them as their own. And this historian was furious about this. He's like, how are these people not going to take over the world? This is a Roman historian. How are they not going to take over the world with this kind of love and compassion? Now, are we acting like that? <laughs> I'm sorry, that was a rhetorical question. Our love and compassion, our selflessness, 
our humiliation, how far down we're willing to go, how far we're willing to sacrifice for others, is such that we can even get pagans to bless us, pagans to say of us, look, how are these people not going to win? And Jesus is in heaven going, yeah, I hear you. I hear you. How are they not going to win? With me behind them, how are they not going to win? With me behind them, they're more than conquerors. There's, there's nothing that can stop them. Right? And, and, and why? Because when they have enemies, they don't revile them. They don't get, right? They don't try to grasp after things that aren't theirs, judgments that aren't theirs, power that's not theirs. Now, there's this, this cutting off thing continues here all the way to the end of this chapter. Saul has seen David, and he says, please, don't cut off my, my generations. He says, don't cut off my household. And, and this is, right, some, something we don't understand in this country is this. Every four years or so, or eight years or so, there is this nonviolent, for the most part, transition of power from one political party to another. And whatever else we can say about this country, the fact that it's gone for so long and and people don't get shot every time is something that's very unique in history. Because Saul sees right to the heart of it. Well, you are going to be king, which means all of my family is going to die. Because Saul Saul is still operating from a power structure that's Gentile-centered, that's worldly-centered, that's fleshly-centered, opposed that's God-centered. David's not going to kill everyone. Jonathan even asked him the same thing. He said, listen, once you're the king and, and God is destroying all your enemies, don't cut off me. They just assume there's going to be this slaughter of everybody who was opposing David. Right? Cut off the hem of my gown, but please, don't cut off my children. Don't cut off my household. Don't destroy us all. He's asking for mercy from him. Right? He recognizes who David is. This is not a man like other men. This is a king who will be, right? He will rise up and take the throne. And, and I expect of you, I think it's possible that you're not going to slaughter everybody who was opposed to you. Saul recognizes there's something different about this man. There is something about his heart. There's something about his mind. There's something about his righteousness that's different. If you're not going to cut me off at such a moment, at such a time when I've done so much, I can trust you to not slaughter all of my kids and grandkids. Now, this is it here. This is, this is it. This is the conclusion. Okay? Which of these two men is operating under the, under the assumption that everything is... right? Which of these men is operating where everything comes out of envy? Saul heard a song where they were saying, yes, you know, Saul killed his thousands, but David killed his ten thousands. And at that moment, he wants to kill him. Right? Jonathan loves David more than he loves Saul. He wants to kill him. He wants what he wants. He wants what he has. He doesn't want to let go of what he has. He's graspy and clutchy, and he wants to hold on and retain his power no matter who he has to murder, who he has to hunt down, who he has to slaughter. Saul is nothing but envy, envy, envy. He, lives, he operates according to this, James 4, 1 through 2. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? It, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. How many of you are coveting, right now, the White House? And you can't attain it, can you? Nobody wants you to be president. No one. No one in this room is ever going to be president. Please don't even run. We don't want you. (laughs) But how many of you act like you're just about to win? Right? Any moment now. I'm going to be 
the most powerful human being on the world. Right? How many of you are coveting even Olympia? Even, even, right? How about the mayor's house? How about now? Like, you hear what the King County's doing where you got to have this vaccination ID card to go into McDonald's because nothing says health like McDonald's. <laughs> right? I mean, I got to go through all of this to show how healthy I am to eat a Big Mac. I, if, if, if that doesn't tell you the world has gone mad, I don't know what else does. <laughs> right? But I, pff, let me into that chamber. Let me into that chamber. Let me straighten this mess out. Look at that household over there. Look at how that family's operating. Look at the decisions they're making about schooling. Look at the decisions they're making about how many kids they're having. Look at the decisions they're making about where they're going to move or not move. What is wrong with that guy? Right? Let me go over there for that, with that family, that husband and wife, for five minutes, and I'll straighten them out. Right? You got that neighbor. Let me just go over there and talk to him. Let me, I'll just go over there and cut his lawn for him. Right? It's like my lawn. Clearly, my responsibility <laughs> extends across the street to my neighbor's yard. Now, if it's a crippled old man, fine. But if it's a 30-year-old who could do it himself, what are you, what's really going on there? Right? We are envious people. We want what is not ours. We want authority that's not ours. We want control that's not ours. We want to judge according to a law that we've written ourselves. And what, what we need to be is like David. Yes, David. <laughs> a man with a heart after God who takes the promises of God and believes that God will fulfill them in his way, his timing, according to his purposes. And it's going to be difficult because at the end of this story, after all of this, what happens? Saul goes back to the palace and David goes back to the caves. And can you imagine how annoyed his men are? Well, after the dressing down, everyone's a little quiet, but they all get on their horses and they're thinking... Sweet. We get to go back to living in caves where people poop. And there's got to be a little bit of like, dude, seriously. But how do you think David feels? Here's the temptation to take the throne, and he doesn't do it. And he may be far from society, right? He would rather live in the wilderness as an outcast, but have his righteousness to be a true and proper son of the living God. And that's what he says. He says... In Psalm 84, chapter 10, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Would you rather be an outcast? Would you rather have a long and difficult uphill walk to heaven or a short, easy stroll to hell? Right? Would you rather have microwaved sanctification or would you rather bake bread? Would you rather have the shortcut that gets you there right now? Or, or would you rather have the God in heaven who kills his own, right, puts his own son to death to save you? Do you would you rather have him guiding the circumstances? Now, I, it's actually hard to answer, right? <laughs> he, sent, right he gives his son the Holy Spirit and sends him into the wilderness. He says, hey, son, I'm going to make you the greatest, most powerful thing in the universe. And here you go. First, you've got to do this cross. And then when it's really presented to us, how much of a difficulty is it really? His way or yours? The shortcut or the hard and long road? Who are you envious of? Whose power, whose authority, or what throne are you grasping that has nothing to do with you, that's so far outside of your purview that it's ridiculous you're even thinking about it? 
Stop being distracted by thrones that are not yours, by authority and power that is not yours, and focus on yours, right? You're a husband, you're a wife, you're a mother, you're a father, you're an employee, you have employees, you have a purview, you have a portfolio. God says, go and be faithful in this kingdom that I have created for you. Don't go beyond it. That's theirs. Don't eat off that tree. Don't kill that guy. Right? You may get a throne out of it, but you're going to end up in hell. If we are going to fight, we have got to fight properly. If we are going to fight, we're going to fight God's way, his timing, his, his rules, his judgments. And vengeance is his, not ours. The timing is his, not ours. The circumstances are not ours. This is what we need to agree upon in our own hearts, in our own minds, in our own homes, and, and, and as the people of God at Redeemer Church. There is a lot to do, okay? And there's going to be a lot of opportunities for shortcuts and easy ways out. And don't take them. Resist them. Be like David. Be like Jesus. The long, <laughs> arduous, difficult road is the road to glory. There's no other way. There is no crown without a cross. Amen. Father, we thank you for the ministry of Samuel, Lord, who recorded these things. We thank you for Saul, Lord, and that he was stricken to the heart. I pray, Lord God, that um, when we are stricken to the heart, we would be like David, that it would last, that it would have an effect upon us that's lasting, Lord God, that we would consider our own lives, that we consider our envious, graspy hearts, that we would repent, Lord God, of all the shortcuts that we've, we take, all of the um, easy safe, selfish ways we try to get out of obedience. I pray, God, that you would give us a heart after you, that you would teach us, Lord, um, to love you, to love your law, to love one another, Lord, and to love the responsibility and, that you've given us, that we would be faithful with it, that we would be obedient in, in the sphere that you've placed us. We thank you and we praise you and amen.